everyone. Johnny, lower that. Hi, everyone. Welcome. This is Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And again, as I've been saying every week, Johnny and I are still trying to get used to that music. Not quite sure if we're lowering it, raising it. And it is a bit beachy, Johnny. So we have to, I think we need to get a little bit. Yeah, something different. But it is a jingle that we did use in one of the Trinity Health of New England commercials. So I, I get it. I get it. Maybe we'll, we'll figure something else out to customize. I want to welcome everyone um, and thank you for joining us on this uh, Wednesday evening, which happens to be um, October. So we are in Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So we're going to dedicate um, our shows this month to breast cancer awareness. And I am very lucky that I have an incredible colleague, friend, and nurse practitioner who um, is supporting me tonight in getting the word out on breast cancer awareness for St. Mary's Hospital and Trinity Health in New England. And she's doing this kind of on the fly for me because our original um, speaker was unable to join us from one of our other markets. So I always can rely on my Waterbury market to come through for me and um, support me. So Yvonne Reddystein, she's an APRN with us, and she, um, as a nurse practitioner, She's been working in the field of breast care for a really long time and also has an expertise in genetics and is helping us out in our genetic screening program. Yvonne, thank you. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. And you're like a champion for me. Thank you. You are a champion. minutes of fame, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> you are the best, and you always, you are always there for me. You never say no to anyone, and I think that's in true form for a nurse, right? Nurse. Yep, it's the nurses. The nurses, we never say no. But it's good to be able to do it on the radio, you know, and do it from your own home and not have to come into the studio where Johnny and I are right now because you can do it from the comfort of your home, and it sounds like you're here. Yeah, and I'm I'm on my couch, and my cat is very interested in what's going on. So if you hear some meowing, that's what it is. That's good. Well, we'll, we'll know that it's not you purring then. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I always love um, the month of October for celebrating women and celebrating um, all that we do and really focusing on those women that are survivors and breast cancer awareness. It's, it's just one of those things things that brings everything to the surface. And I'm sure because this is what you do all the time, this month is incredibly important for you. Yes, every October. Absolutely. Do you get a lot of, do you get a lot of women um, during the month of October? Do you notice that if those volumes go up more because there's more awareness? That's an interesting question. Um, it's definitely cyclical. Mm. Um, I feel, honestly, I feel like it's more related to insurance company deadlines. Yeah, that's anything true. Else. You know, people are meeting their deductibles in at the end of the year. Right. Or they want to meet their deductibles. So right. they get a lot of screening towards the end of the year. Towards that end of the year. Yeah. So, you know, when you look at it, we are so blessed in our market because we have three incredible breast surgeons and you happen to be with Dr. Ellen Polikoff at the Polikoff Breast Care, which is in Southbury. Now, how long have you been with Dr. Polikoff? Since 2005, so almost 
spent actually almost 16 years in January. Wow. I know. And, you know, when you started out as an APRN, you, did you start out in um, adult medicine, acute medicine? What did you start out in? I actually started out, I have certification as an adult um, nurse practitioner and an acute care nurse practitioner, but I actually started out in cardiology. Um, and then when I moved, I was I lived uh, elsewhere. And when I moved to Connecticut, um, my daughter uh, was only 18 months old. So I was looking to work part-time. And Dr. Polakoff needed a part-time nurse practitioner, and I needed a part-time um, practice. And, and ever since then, we've You've been, been together. Yeah. So, you know, it's a um, cardiology to breast care are two very different focuses, right? But she's an incredible mentor, Dr. Polakoff. So what was that like, your journey, um, just starting with her and how you learned with her? Oh, my gosh. I will tell you, doing cardiology, I had, it's more of a medical specialty as as opposed to a surgical specialty. Mm. So when I pictured surgeons in my mind, I pictured... Maybe people who don't have, you hear about surgeons who don't have a great bedside manner, you know, people who are very skillful, but maybe don't explain things in the way that a patient needs to hear, you know, I'm stereotyping, of course. So when I interviewed with her, I was very surprised at just her demeanor. She's very calm, and when I saw her with patience, she's kind and compassionate and understandable and skilled in the OR. So I felt like I really lucked out because I feel like she's she's the whole package. She definitely is. I mean, we were really lucky, and I'm going to really go back in time, and I'm, I'm going to tell you, I think she came to St. Mary's. 2004. Yeah, I was going to say three. Mm-hmm. So it was the year after you started, the year before you started year with before her. before I started, and so, she got busy very quickly, she, and then that's yeah. why they brought me in, yeah. She got busy really quickly, quickly is right. And when I first met her, I was so blown over, and I was like, wow. She had come from the from Yale, and, yeah. you know, and, and I'm thinking with all that prestige, you know, but she, she had such an incredible way about her in connecting with the patients. And mm-hmm. I, I can tell you, even on a personal note, she cares about the people that are part of her circle and people that are, and for myself personally, when my husband had gotten sick in, in 2006, when he had the stroke, the first physician that called me at Yale was Dr. Polakoff. She called me on my cell phone. She found out about him. And she called and said, I'm from, what can I do to help you navigate? Mm -hmm. And I'll never, ever forget that moment. So I can only imagine what she's like with her patients who really need her to be present with them as they go through a breast cancer diagnosis. Right. And even if they, you know, patients come to see us, most patients don't get diagnosed with breast cancer when they see us. Mm. But people are afraid when they come see us because there's either something wrong with their mammogram or their ultrasound or they feel a lump or they have pain. So they're, 
uniformly, everyone is afraid. So it is helpful because she's so calm and down to earth. And more than one patient has told me she shoots straight from the hip. She does. Yep. She doesn't uh, gloss over anything. Um, She's realistic and compassionate at the same time. And I think think that's what I love about her because she is very real. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that patients really need to hear the truth. But then once you hear that truth, okay, what are we doing next? Exactly. Let's go. Let you know, let's mm-hmm. figure this out. But she lets you have that moment mm-hmm. and then, you know, she encourages it, okay, so this is where we're at. Let's move from there and what are we gonna do next? So you bring up a, a point that I actually wanted to get to because I think for the first part of this program I do want to talk a bit about, you know, of course the breast cancer awareness piece and talking a bit about imaging and diagnosis. And then I'd like to go into a bit about the genetics since we're very fortunate to have you provide that service for us. So, you know, when a patient gets has an issue, a problem in their mammogram, an issue on the mammogram, or they feel a lump, as you said, or, or whatever it may be, when they're sent to a breast surgeon, I am sure just hearing the term breast surgeon, right in their minds, they're thinking, I have to have breast surgery, I have cancer. Right, exactly. I think, yes, I think you're exactly right. And when they come to you, you're saying to me most of those cases don't turn out to be that. Correct. Right? So when you're looking at imaging, so let's let's talk about what the first steps are for women because let's talk about what we do diagnostically for women every year and what should be happening. And of course, we'll talk about the mammogram because that's a gold standard. Mm-hmm. So what are the guidelines? Have they changed at all? No, and, and even before we get to technology, I would say number one is be familiar with your own breast mm-hmm. tissue. So on a monthly basis, um, be, you know, while you're in the shower, poke around. And what I tell people is you're not trying to diagnose yourself what's a cyst, what's not a cyst, what's a lump, what's this, what's that. Just if you notice a change, then you let your health care provider know. And that's number one. Mm-hmm. Um, number two is having a health care provider who does a clinical breast exam on you every year um, so that, again, you have another, just another, it's another pair of hands. Absolutely. Just, yeah, being familiar with the breast tissue so that if there were uh, an abnormality, something could be felt. You bring up such, those two pieces, the clinical breast exam and the breast self-exam, are so underplayed. Mm-hmm. In breast education and breast aware, breast cancer awareness, that I am so glad you brought those up because when I when I started um, a bit in community education and, and in the breast cancer awareness piece, that where my career took me a bit, those were the two things that the American Cancer Society in the beginning really pushed and really promoted, and I don't know that they're emphasized as much anymore. I don't think they are because most. Things that people feel are not cancer. And I think a lot of the guidelines reflect the fact that they don't want people overdoing, I'm putting overdoing in air quotes, I wish you could see me, (laughs) overdoing it so that they're they're not unnecessarily worried. But I feel that 
being familiar with your own breast tissue, I mean, I say it over and over again to all, all the patients, if you never feel, you never have the opportunity to detect. And yeah, maybe you'll feel something and you'll come in and you'll be worried and then it's nothing, but the opposite of that is never feeling and never detecting. So that's yeah. my own personal... Agreed. Yeah. Absolutely agreed. And, you know, I used to have the little breast models in my car, in my bag. They took every to every program I went to. And, you know, you would feel all the different areas within those breast models. And people would ask me, and I'm like, if it's not been there and it's new and it's different for you, go talk to your physician. Exactly. I can't tell you just based by feeling on it, oh, that's just a cyst. There's no way we can tell that. Exactly. Right? Dr. Polakoff could probably tell Yes. But, that, but that's the in the hands of the expert. Totally. It's right? the average woman on the street. All you're trying to do is detect a change. Right. And month to month, you know, if you see a clinician every year, yeah, you you get that, you have a sense of what somebody feels like. That's year to year. But doing it every month, I think that is much more powerful because you're detecting a change you know, you have the you have the ability to detect to change eleven times a year instead of once a year. Do you know what I mean? Ab- absolutely. I always use the story because it's it it is a compelling story, and everyone out there that knows about dense breast tissue, which we will get into, knows um, you know the late Dr. Nancy Capello and her story, which was she had her mammogram and. It was a couple of months, I think, before she went for her um, GYN exam, and she used to see Dr. Claire Ventry, who has since retired um, a few years back. I don't know if you remember Claire. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. Dr. Claire Ventry, and she mm-hmm. went for her exam, and Dr. Ventry f- was doing her breast exam. She goes, oh, Nancy, I see you had your mammogram, and she starts, she says, let me just do the breast exam, and underneath her axilla... She found right, you know, right underneath the armpit. She found a mass. She goes, Nancy. I, you know, you had your mammogram. I don't know what this is, and Nancy, you know, had breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, so I mean, there's case in point where had she not had that exam scheduled, she may have gone along her her merry way, um, as she used to call it, with the information she had gotten from her happy gram, right? <laughs> And she used to use that term all the time. I think of Nancy so fondly during these months. But, you know, that's a story that will stay with me forever. Absolutely. Because it's it's definitely so important. What are some of the other things, Get you know, not looking at technology that women, you know, I mean, a lot of women talk about breast pain. What is that usually indicative of? Is it a sign to worry? Uh, the 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 saying is, you know, I so many people come in and they say, well, I heard if it's pain, it's not breast cancer, right. which is, I mean, um, I think that is normally true. Normally, when someone has pain, what we do is we do an exam. We usually do an ultrasound. We usually order a mammogram, and if all those three things don't show anything. It's usually, it could be hormonal, it could be too much caffeine, Um, so that's usually pain is not the sign of breast cancer, but obviously we want everyone to come in if they're feeling any changes, whether that's a physical change like a lump or if they're feeling pain where they used to not feel pain. Most of the time, pain, uh, sometimes pain is due to a cyst. Right. 
Yeah, and then all Dr. Polkoff has to do is drain it, and then right. it's done. That's what I absolutely love, too, about our the our breast surgeons, all three of them, Dr. Polakoff, Dr. Sealing, and Dr. Sukan, is you have the ultrasounds right in your office so that, you know, if there's an area of pain or an area of concern, they can utilize. They're very adept, which I don't think um, individuals realize, but the breast surgeons have been trained utilizing the ultrasound and they're very adept at finding the area on the ultrasound and they can quickly drain something. Oh, absolutely. We don't make anyone wait. If someone comes in and something needs to be sampled, biopsied, drained. As long as you can see it with an ultrasound, it can be done in the office. Absolutely. You you brought up a point that I, I want to um, expand on a little bit. When you said, you know, they, they, if you have pain, if you have something going on, if it's new or different, you just come in. Do women need to go see a primary care physician or the OBGYN first or can women just make an appointment, or what's your criteria for women coming to the office? Hmm. Um, <laughs> so many women are already established with right. us, and they know our mantra is "call us." Right. You know, don't don't wait. It's fine if you call, and and people come in and they say, "Oh, I don't want to waste your time." Time, our time is not wasted if it's nothing. Mm-hmm. Like that's peace of mind for everyone, right? Right. Um. So. Some people will see their GYN first, so the GYN can do an exam, and then the GYN will order a mammogram and or an ultrasound. That's a nice first step because then the patient comes in and they already have all their imaging. Right. If you come in and you haven't had any imaging, chances are we're going to order imaging so that, you know, that's a second step you have to take. Right. But if you can't get in with anyone else, of course we're going to. Of course we're going to see someone who's having a breast issue, whether they're self-referred or whether they're referred by anyone else. I think that's a really good point, though. And I, you know, I, I remember when I did a lot of this work in the field. That is definitely something we said that if you have an established physician, start there mm-hmm. because you can get the imaging. And then take that imaging and bring that imaging, you know, to the breast surgeon so that you've already taken care of that step. Right, because not only do we do a breast exam when you're seen, we look at the hard copy images or the digital images now on the computer. Right. um, So that we can put it all together. So we've done a physical exam and then we can look at the mammogram and, and the ultrasound if one was done and put all three things together. Now those digital images are so, so important. So that's going to bring me a bit to the mammography piece. So we started on this a little bit. So what are the new guidelines are there, or have they changed at all for mammography? Because it's still the gold standard, correct? Yeah. I mean, as far as frequency, we recommend yearly mammography for women 40 and older and you can go younger in cases where maybe there's a family history or a genetic mutation. So a mam- are, are all mammograms created equal? Um, I have not seen an analog mammogram film in years. <laughs> so digital mammograms are definitely the the least of what you want. Now there are 3D mammograms of uh, homosynthesis. 
those things allow the radiologist to manipulate the images a lot like you can manipulate a CAT scan image right. so that you can tell whether something's solid or maybe not real at all. Yep. Um, for women with dense breast tissue, we recommend the 3D or the tomosynthesis. Women who don't have such dense breasts, you can get away with a, a just a digital mammogram. Right, just the 2D, yeah. right? You know, I I worked so long in this field, so I watched the films being developed back in the day, <laughs> in the 90s, uh, right through to, you know, watching the, the evolution of the digital mammography and now the 3D mammography. Uh, and, you know, from a personal perspective, you know, on the back end, watching the radiologists do these, when they were film, you know, and I equate the film just like we would develop um, a, a film from the camera back mm-hmm. in the day, right? And we would wait for the film to come out, and then the technologist would present the films to the radiologist, and then he would have to take those images and compare them to the year before. And actually, the rule of thumb was like two years before, and then looking at it, then then looking at the last years, which I found really interesting, because then they could really see change. Yeah, we do three years minimum. Do you? Oh, yeah. absolutely. I mean, the value in the mammography is looking for subtle changes over time. Yeah, it, and I learned so much from that. I truly did. And then watching the doctors try to manipulate on film something that was real or wasn't real kind of equated them into taking extra pictures. Right. Oh, yes. Compression views. Right. Yeah. Having digital mammograms and 3D and tomosynthesis has definitely decreased the number of additional views that we need to order because, again, manipulating that image, you can tell whether something is real or not just by, you know, turning the images um, rather than taking many more films. Right. And, you know, they're looking at, you know, I know they're looking at areas where, you know, you see those subtle changes or sometimes just tissue overlapping itself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they can manipulate it so that it goes away Mm -hmm. and it's not real. You know, it's amazing to watch that happen, which is why it's so important to know that the facility you're having your, your test in has that capability. Yeah. Now, we also utilize, you know, we mentioned mentioned dense breast tissue. We also utilize breast ultrasound. And I know back in the day, that's not something that was done for screening or in addition to a mammogram. It was done if we saw something on a mammogram. So can you explain that evolution of um, screening breast ultrasound and how it helps you? Well, you mentioned Dr. Nancy Capello. I mean, she was instrumental in that movement. So she had very dense breast tissue, which is why her mammogram didn't show any gross abnormalities because I don't know if you've ever looked at your mammogram films. Oh, yeah. I have fatty breasts. Whiter it is. Mine are very fatty. Okay. (laughs) So they're easy to see through. (laughs) That's good. It's a good thing. Mammogram. Yes. But um, people with very dense breast tissue, it's really hard to see anything because there's so much white, so much glandular tissue. So anyway, so that's why sometimes you can't detect a change because everything is whited out. 
So what Nancy's crusade was, was to offer, not offer, to make sure any woman with dense breast tissue that the insurance company would pay for a screening breast ultrasound, not just an ultrasound in one little spot where you thought there might be a problem, but both breasts entirely so that you could detect any masses or findings or cysts or anything that wasn't detectable by the mammogram alone. You know, and watching that to change over time, uh, I believe that even at the best technologists, they needed to go back because there was training that had to be had and how to do a screening breast ultrasound because most breast ultrasounds were more targeted, mm-hmm. right? On the but, but to do a screening breast ultrasound, you really have to start at 12 o'clock, mm-hmm. go to one, go to two, you know, as if they were a face mm-hmm. of a clock and really cover that area and, and honestly try to not manipulate something to make it be something but to really be proficient at it absolutely i mean i do some ultrasounds in the office and it can be easy to make something look like more than it is right and again i've i've and it's very time consuming a good screening breast ultrasound could take a good 45 minutes yeah i call i call some women's uh, ultrasounds, you know, busy breasts. There's a lot going on in there. Yeah. It's going to take time to look at everything. Absolutely. And it does. It really does take time. And so if you identify something when the woman's in the office and it doesn't go away and it looks real, will you biopsy it utilizing the breast ultrasound right then and there? Yes. Me personally, no. But, but doc, Dr. Yeah, but Dr. Polikoff, Polikoff will yeah. come in, right? Yeah. And and is there a particular um, is there a particular way that you do that biopsy? Do you use special equipment? Is it just a needle? Yeah. Um, so first, you numb it up, you right. know, with lidocaine, and then. Um, you use the ultrasound and you keep the ultrasound probe on the thing you're biopsying the right. whole time. And then she has special, you know, needles yep. and she takes pictures the whole time so that you know that you're, you know, going right through the thing that you're biopsying. And then afterwards, almost every time you put in a clip, a right. little teeny tiny titanium marker and that does a couple things. One is, then you can see it on the mammogram so that if something showed up on the mammogram, you have a mammogram after the biopsy, and then you can see, oh, the clip is right in that little thing that we saw, so that means the thing that was on the ultrasound that she biopsied corresponded to this abnormality on the mammogram. And then the other reason to do the clip is so that when you do a follow-up on ultrasound, say in six months or a year, you can still see the clip on the ultrasound, right. and you go back and you say, oh, that path was negative, right. we see the thing, it was benign, and now we don't have to worry about it. And also, if, you, if it were positive, would it provide a marker for her? Oh, yeah, and that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's a very important reason to do it, so that if you have a clip in there, she can find it during surgery. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if something is seen on mammography versus the ultrasound, um, 
and we're and and it's something of concern mm-hmm. and it's something they feel you know what we do need to go in and biopsy or take a sample mm-hmm. i know we use some something called stereotactic breast biopsy mm-hmm. can you explain that a little bit so that's when you can't see something with the ultrasound. You're only seeing something on the mammogram. So you go to the, we usually have them done at St. Mary's Radiology, and you go into the radiology department, and there is a radiologist who has special training, and um, they they do the biopsy sort of under the, while you're in the mammography. Yeah, it's so kind of cool to watch, actually. Yeah, it looks like a mammography machine lying on its back. Yeah, and you, <laughs> the person being biopsied, is laying on your stomach. Right. So that your breast is sort of hanging through, and then they compress it, and then the radiologist, you know, numbs it and targets the lesion and, you know, does the biopsy with the needle and then puts in a, a clip. That is pretty, you know, I used to assist the radiologist in that procedure long ago when Dr. Bushy was around. And we, it was amazing to me how these areas, when you saw them on the mammogram, once you lie down in that machine, how they change and where the location is, because now you're on your stomach. But that, which is why you utilize the camera and the 3D imaging to find it. Right, as Dr. Polakoff says. Breasts are three-dimensional, right? Yeah. So you're looking at something on a film which is two-dimensional. Right. So you have to account for for those differences when you're biopsying something. So, you know, all the things that we're talking out, are talking about in regards to the latest in breast imaging, although they seem, you know, like they've been around for a long time, such as mammography and breast ultrasound, we've learned how to utilize them in so many different ways to get a more earlier diagnosis and preserving breast tissue at the same time. Yeah, and, you know, even though mammography has been around for a long time, we've gone from analog right. to digital, which is, you know, two-dimensional, now to three-dimensional. So there have been advances within the same technology as well. Right, which is really, really cool to utilize the same, something we have and just make it better mm-hmm. and, and, you know, provide better answers. When does breast MRI come into play? A couple, you know, there's a couple scenarios where you would recommend a breast MRI. One is if... Um, you are trying to define something on a mammogram and the ultrasound you don't you can't find it on the ultrasound you might order an MRI for that um, another is just for screening someone with very dense breast tissue so mammogram ultrasound and MRI but maybe you do your MRI six months from the ultrasound and mammogram so that you have an even interval throughout the year that you're being screened Mm. and then um, the other reason is people who have high lifetime risk of breast cancer whether that's due to family history or a genetic mutation that predisposes you to breast cancer we use MRI uh, yearly to screen for breast cancer in those patients as well 
And the MRI is pretty unique. It kind of reminds me of like the stereotactic machine that we just talked about because you are lying on your stomach and they utilize like a certain coil, right? Mm-hmm. There's a breast coil, yes, and you're on your stomach. So it's definitely not on your back. Correct. Because <laughs> a lot of women are confused when they go in there. I'm like, you know, nope, you're going to be lying down on your stomach, stomach and it's the yeah. same. It's an odd, it's very odd feeling, but it's it, it's it's very different for sure. But it picks up things that you cannot believe. But sometimes it picks up things that are false positive too, which is tough. Right. But again, it's the same as any test. Mm. So MRI is good at picking subtle things up, but as a result of that sensitivity, it may pick up things that aren't anything at all. Right. So it's it's a trade-off. Mm-hmm. If you want a test that's stronger in the ability to pick up subtle things, then it may pick up things that, you know, aren't aren't troublesome at all. Right. Um, which can lead to a biopsy. Yeah. And, um, but, I, you know, personally, I think, I don't feel like a negative biopsy is a failure mm. of screening. Agreed. I think that's actually... You need some negatives, right? Absolutely. I mean, you don't want every single thing you biopsy to be positive. Absolutely. You want to make sure you're picking up lots of things, not only the positives. Absolutely. And for and for women with such a strong family history and that genetic piece that we're going to talk about in a few minutes, truly, it is definitely one of the one of the uh, imaging um, capabilities that we have that provides you with just that another type of an image. Yep, yep. And, you know, I point out to the patients, you know, there's pluses and minuses to every every type of imaging. Mm. So mammograms use radiation, and it's not a lot of radiation, but it's radiation. Now, MRIs don't have any radiation. They mm. use a magnet, mm. yet MRIs use contrast, and mammography doesn't. So there are pluses and minuses to it all. So sometimes people ask, well, why wouldn't I just get a mammogram every six months instead of doing a mammogram alternating with an MRI. And it's because you want to use different modalities because the strengths of each test are a little bit different. So you're getting the benefit of all of them if you do them throughout the year. You know, it's funny, you just answered the question that I I was going to ask you was then, you know, why not go straight to MRI for certain things? But they each have their own way of picking up subtleties. Right. Mammography is superior at picking up something called DCIS, which is early breast cancer, which hasn't even gotten out of the ducts yet. Right. And MRI is not great at picking that up, but mammograms are. So, but, okay, so then there's a type of cancer called lobular carcinoma, which MRIs are very good at picking up and mammograms aren't. So if it were me, I want it all. You know, I want the ability to pick up the DCIS and the lobular. Absolutely. Is lobular very common because you don't hear it that much? No, no, it's it's not as common. The, The the garden variety breast cancer is ductal. Is ductal carcinoma. Yeah. So as we as we move on, 
we talk a little bit more about screening and we talk a little bit more about, of course, family history. And that leads us to genetics, which is something that interested you quite a bit that you've gone out to get some training on. So let's let's talk about, first of all, what your training was and why you were so interested in doing it. Well, you know, in, in nursing school and... Um, and for my master's, my nurse practitioner, you, you do a little bit of genetics, mm. but not in depth at all. And when I joined Dr. Polakoff, uh, Dr. Sealing came to join the two of us um, a year or two later, and she was very interested in genetic testing. So they asked me if if that could be something that I would be interested in because it takes a lot of time to do genetic counseling right. Uh Um, So for two busy breast surgeons, you know, there's, it was, it was the perfect thing for, for a nurse practitioner to be doing. So I said yes. And I went on and um, realized very quickly that genetics is, always changing it's very complicated and you really need specialized training to do it so i took a course at the city of hope which is this amazing cancer center in california and i got my feet wet with that and then i came back from that and i actually got certification through the american nurses credentialing center so i'm actually a credentialed um, advanced genetics nurse so when is genetics an appropriate conversation with um, a woman coming in, whether it be with a breast issue or whether it be with a true diagnosis of breast cancer? When, when does the conversation start? We talk to everybody who walks through our door, no matter what problem they have and whether they're an established patient or a new patient. Because it's all about your family history. Mm. So even if you come in and you have breast pain and we figure out it's a cyst and we aspirate it and you're done, if you have a family history of three ants with breast cancer, it's a conversation we want to have because you want to identify people who are at elevated risk of breast cancer so that you can screen them appropriately or reduce risk. So everyone who walks through, we look at the family history, and if there are any red flags, then we talk to them about, you know, eventually doing genetic counseling and testing. And if there are no red flags, you know, the next time we come in, we relook at the family history because family history is always changing, right? Right. So, so let's talk about what are the red flags. So red flags are, and they keep changing the age so if it's a single breast cancer in the family it's at age 45 or under if there's more than one breast cancer in the family it can be 50 or under if there's three or more breast cancers in a family it's any age wow any ovarian cancer in the family any pancreatic cancer in the family any metastatic or aggressive prostate cancer in the family, um, triple negative breast cancers under the age of 60. Um, those, are the, those are the big red flags. Oh, or somebody with um, breast cancer, two primaries, meaning one in each breast or two separate breast cancers in a single breast. 
So there, there's a, I'm not going to call it an old wives' tale. I guess I should call it there is thought that if you're, breast cancer is on your mother's side of the family, then you're more prone. And if it's on your father's side of the family, you're probably not going to be affected. No, and I'm, I dispel that myth mm-hmm. constantly because think about it. You get half your, your genetic makeup from your mother and you get half from your father. Mm. So it does not matter which side the breast cancer or the red flags are from. It's it's equally concerning if there's a family history. And, you know, that's why I bring these things up, because these are the things that, you know, you routinely hear in, in the media. I hear them from, you know, I don't see the breast patients anymore. But when I was with women um, in the breast center, I would hear these things. And so I think it's so important because those myths continue to live on, I think. Oh, my gosh, yes. Right? Yes, if I had a nickel for every time. <laughs> yes, yes. They come in. So the most common um, of the genes that we hear about in the media are the BRCA1 and the BRCA2. Can you explain what that is and what they are? So we all have these genes, and they're, they're DNA damage repair genes. And to be super simple about cancer, cancer occurs when you have DNA damage to your cells and then these cells build up over time and form a tumor or become, you know, cancer. So you want these genes like BRCA1 and 2 and other genes like them to work correctly because they repair DNA damage. But if there's a mutation in one or more of those genes, you don't have that protective effect of the gene, which is doing its best to prevent you from developing cancer due to DNA damage. Now, just if you have that mutation, it doesn't mean that you're going to have breast cancer. Correct. It just increases your risk. And I think that's where the scare is. Sure. I mean, you know, some when I do genetic counseling, some people say, oh, I don't know if I would want to know. And, you know, you can spin it in any way you want. But, but, you know, my feeling about it is if you find out, I mean, knowledge is power. Right. So if you find out you're at increased risk, are you going to do anything differently about that? Right. Are you going to make sure you go for your mammogram every year? And if you're tissue is dense, you go for your ultrasound. But then if you have a genetic mutation, we can add on that MRI six months from the mammo and the ultrasound. If you haven't ever seen a breast surgeon before, we'll plug you into a breast surgeon and get seen once or twice a year for a good breast exam plus your exam by your gynecologist. So it, it gives you the knowledge you need to help detect early or risk reduce. You know, how about if a woman, and so I'm going to throw a couple scenarios out to you. How about if a woman shows and presents early, um, very young, I'm going to say under the age of 40, with a breast cancer, and you do, um, and she ends up having the mutation. Uh What, What is... What is the advice that's given? I mean, I guess it's I guess it just depends on the person, right? There's no wrong decision. Totally. So so if the 
person ha- does not have breast cancer, you talk about increased surveillance. So, okay, so say she's 35. Normally, you wouldn't start mammograms at 35, right? You start right. at 40. But if you have a genetic mutation, you start. Um, you can actually start at 30. Mm-hmm. And their breast tissue is going to be dense because they're 35. So right. you add in an ultrasound. And then I would order an MRI to be done six months from the mammo in the ultrasound. And then, you know, um, have them start following up with the breast surgeon. There's other options as well. There are medications that we know can decrease the risk of developing breast cancer, but all medications come with possible downsides. So you have to discuss the downsides of the medication. And then some people opt for, you know, the ultimate prevention is mastectomies. Mm -hmm. So just like Angelina Jolie, Mm -hmm. good enough for her, good enough for anybody else, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you can remove the breast tissue to reduce your risk of developing breast cancer. It's so hard that it's such a personal choice. I always use these two women I know, sisters, that have a mother, um, a, sis- a mother, an aunt, and a grandmother. They all had breast cancer, so they um, were both tested, and they do carry the mutation. But they both chose a different path. Oh my gosh! Absolutely. So yes, there's no one right decision. I mean, right. we're all different, so we all make different decisions. Now, if a, if a person is tested because they have just been diagnosed with breast cancer, the choices don't change, but, you know, the mindset of the person making the decision may change a little bit. So if you are diagnosed with breast cancer and then you have a genetic mutation, well, you already need surgery, Mm. right? Right. And hopefully you only need a lumpectomy. Mm. And there is, you know, there's no, nothing against having a lumpectomy when you have a genetic mutation. Then moving forward, you still get screened with the mammogram, the ultrasound, and the MRI moving forward. Right. You see the breast surgeon twice a year. But some women decide that they want mastectomies Mm. because they've been diagnosed once. And then they, you know, they know what that's like. And, and they use that to help make a decision about, uh, you know, a, a mastectomy. And some women don't. Some women just want lumpectomy. And, right. again, neither choice is wrong. It's such a personal decision. It is a personal decision. And, and and if you make that decision, and it's decision you make for yourself, and you have the support of your family and the support of the physicians behind you, like your, yourselves, I, I think that the woman will do well irregardless, because she's got that awareness. Yeah, I mean, there are some people who, I mean, really, we, we make sure that people are not making their decision, whatever it is, lightly. You have ample opportunity to talk to the breast surgeon, to talk to me, you know, you talk to your your partner, you talk right. to friends, you talk to family. I mean, you know, this is not a, a small decision to make. So I know that especially Dr. Polakoff, like she makes sure that you are comfortable with the decision, right. whether it's lumpectomy or mastectomy, before she does surgery. 
we talked about the BRCA1 and 2, and we're referring it to women, but do men have or carry this gene too? Absolutely. We all, men and women carry the, the gene, and then equally, you know, men and women can have a mutation in that gene, but the cancers that affect men are slightly, there's a little overlap, but there's also some differences. So whereas a woman with a mutation in BRCA1 or 2 has an increased risk of breast cancer, second breast cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, and melanoma, Hmm. a man has an increased risk of breast cancer. Yes, men get breast cancer. Um, Pancreatic cancer, melanoma, and prostate cancer, Mm -hmm. aggressive or metastatic prostate cancer. So there's a bit of an overlap, and the percentages are a little bit different, but you, you can see the similarities. So a lot of men have prostate cancer. I mean, it is one of those things we're just seeing so much more of. Mm-hmm. I don't hear that they do much genetic testing on men when they've been diagnosed with prostate cancer. Should I'm it? Working should on it. Go- yeah. Ah. Yeah. No, it's an it, an indication for genetic testing is a man with aggressive or metastatic prostate cancer. Now, luckily, most men don't have metastatic right, or correct. prostate okay. cancer. Mm-hmm. But you also have to think about the man who has female breast cancer in his family, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, and other prostate cancers. So these are, you know, if you have sisters and aunts and mother and grandmother and female cousins with all these types of cancers, you need to think about genetic testing if you're a male, whether or not you have prostate cancer. So you're working on this. Uh, I'm always working on it. Who are you working on this with? Well, it's, I don't know. I may well, need to help you. Sure. Yeah, well, we've got two urologists, you know, that joined our group. Okay, okay. <laughs> we may need to well, do a mini road trip. Sure. Well, you know, I catch I catch men when I can, and a right. lot of times men will come to either the genetic counseling initial appointment or the results appointment. Mm. And when I go over results with the you know the the female sitting in front of me, and then I say, okay, so you're negative. Your kids don't need genetic testing unless you know your husband or your partner has a significant family history of breast cancer and occasionally and maybe more often than occasionally you know he'll say well my sister had breast cancer my mother had breast cancer (sighs) and then we end up making an appointment for him and i have had it happen (laughs) where the woman does not have a genetic mutation but the man does and it affects the children then, right? Absolutely. And so, you know, I asked this because Johnny's in front of me here, but he has a brother-in-law with breast cancer, correct, Johnny? That's right. Yep. That's correct. He yeah. has a brother-in-law yeah. breast cancer, and he needs to, and he's been tested? He's been tested, but, uh, and there's family history, too, with other breast so his wife, his, So yeah. Johnny's wife, which would be his... Mm-hmm. Sister, you know, right, this man right. to be needs yeah. to be tested. Yeah, yeah. So she you is. may be getting a call. So is the brother-in-law positive? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He had oh, uh, he had uh, he had breast cancer. And but and he had the, the mutation. Did he, have a mutation. Did he have a mutation, Johnny? Oh, gosh, I don't know. 
So we need to know his genetic piece. Correct. Because if he's positive, then your wife has a 50-50 chance of being positive. So all the siblings would have a 50-50 chance. Four siblings. Johnny. No, four minutes. Yeah. Four minutes. Oh, Johnny's telling me four minutes. I have four siblings. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Johnny. So, yeah. So if the person himself doesn't have a mutation, then you can make the case that the siblings don't need genetic testing. So knowing whether the person with cancer has a mutation or not can either spur on the rest of them to get tested or prevent the need for the rest of them to get tested. All right, I have to do some more investigation. You got to do some more work and we'll yeah. be bringing... I feel like every year we talk about this, Johnny. Jo- yeah, she's right. She's right. <laughs> I know. We've been down this road, Johnny. Yeah. I know. I and he get told me, and he told me that <laughs> she wasn't tested. So I put him on the spot again. Okay. All right, I'm going to work on her. You need to work on her to I'd get it done. I'm happy to see her. Yes. She can even call me to ask questions. Right. Okay. So that brings up a good point. So, you know, most of the time I know you're at the Polakoff Breast Center. So that's at 900 uh, South Main Street. I call it Main Street South in Southbury. And your phone there is 203-262-2300. And you're at the Harold Lever Center every Wednesday, right? Mm-hmm. Now, how would they get a hold of you there? Or would they make the appointment through the Polakoff Breast Care Center? Yeah, it's the easiest way is to call the Southbury office. Okay. And then they'll give you a choice of either going to the Lever Center on a Wednesday or the other days of the week, go to Southbury. All right, perfect. So that's 203-262-2300. And if you want to know more, please go on our website, trinityhealthofne.org, and you can type in Yvonne Ruddy Stein, and she will pop up and give you all the locations. So thank you so much for all the information. We can talk, you and I, forever. I know. You give me more than 15 minutes of fame now. <laughs> you got, yeah, you absolutely got a whole hour of fame for Seriously, sure. 60 minutes. It's the best. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And we will be talking soon. You're so welcome. All right. Have, have a great day. night. Bye, Johnny. Bye. <laughs> have a good one. <laughs> you too. Bye. So I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. And, you know, Yvonne gives incredible advice. And I really wanted to go over, especially for the first night that we were doing our show on breast cancer awareness, I really wanted to talk about the screening and all the different screening tools and what we're using and what makes sense. We um, at St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England, we do have the latest of all the equipment. We have the 3G mammography here as well as within our network. And it's so important to make sure that you're getting the right services. And if you have any questions on how to access care or you need um, help with paying for mammography, or any um, imaging service regarding breasts, we have a woman's concierge line. And I'm going to give that to you. one 833 N E N is in Nancy, E is in England, woman, W-O-M-E-N. And that's one 6636 And we have a woman concierge there. Her name is Heather. She's a nurse, and she could help navigate you um, through our system. So I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. Johnny's playing my music, so I guess i got to go have a healthy, happy, and safe weekend. Take care.